come before the Lord, asking that he might speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, it is just a joy to see people gathered together, people who live on their own sitting with other people, because now as a result of change of restrictions, we are able to do that. We pray and we long to see your body functioning in all the ways in which you have designed it to function. Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you called us into a body, that you called us uh, to be your children, not because we deserve to be, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf through his death, resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Lord, we thank you for the, the mighty truths contained in your word, life-transforming truths, and we pray that it might have that very effect on us as we hear it this morning, uh, not just on one side of the pulpit, but on both sides. Uh, that we might be shaped and formed to become more like your Son to the glory and honour of your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've had glasses the whole time that I've been up here in Toowoomba, but I haven't had glasses all of my life. I was, during the time when I was at Bible College, I think possibly around about 2007, 2008, I thought, eye tests, they're free, can't help can't hurt to get one. As far as I'm concerned, everything's good, my eyesight's good, but then I think, now I'm getting into my 30s, mum's got glasses, my brother's got glasses, probably worth getting it checked out. And if you've been tested, you know the routine, you sit there, they do all these other things and they get these weird sort of frames on, they, they click these different things in, which one's clearer? Number one, number two, number one, number two. Sometimes you've got no idea which one's clearer out of the two, but you just take a stab at one of them. And then after you've gone through what seems like a lifetime of flips between number one, number two, number one, number two, they give you, you have on yourself on these funny frames what it would look like if they gave you glasses. And I remember looking across at one of the chairs there in the room and thought, wow, there's that much detail in that chair. Now, I was only there just out of curiosity because it was free. And I thought, probably should get itself checked out. I had absolutely no idea that there was any deterioration whatsoever. It's only when you get given a clearer vision that you recognise that you've lived with limitations for a long period of time. Now, there are minor limitations in my case. I can still legally drive without glasses. I'm not a danger on the road. If you see me driving without glasses, it's okay. You don't need to call the police. But today we encountered a man who has more than just limitations. He was blind. He could not see a thing. And Jesus' healing of this man is unusual. Unusual in its method. Spit's not our common approach to addressing medical things. But also unusual in that it's the only healing of Jesus that does not happen instantly and perfectly in one hit. It's like a two-stage healing. Now, some commentators have suggested, and probably very foolishly suggested, that that's the reason why it doesn't appear in the other Gospels, that, that they think it looks a little bit embarrassing for Jesus that he had to have two cracks at it to, to achieve a particular outcome. But you can 100% rule out any notion or any suggestion that Jesus choosing to heal in two stages is because 
the first one wasn't any good or he didn't have the power to do it instantaneously and perfectly. What we see is when we see it in its context, Jesus intentionally healed in two phases to communicate a particular message that we'll be looking at this morning. So we're not just looking at the healing, but Jesus' divine purposes and lessons given in this two-stage process. And at the same time, it's my hope for myself, is my hope for each one of us, that however and whatever extent to which you see and understand the identity and mission of Jesus, uh, that we would see him clearer through our time together. So we're going to look at the man. He's not named in the passage. He goes from blind, better to best. Then we'll look at the disciples from blind, better to best. And our conclusion, instead of should have gone to Specsavers, should have gone to Jesus. So firstly, the man, blind, better to best. Our passage begins with its setting in Jewish territory, Bethsaida, you see there, just on the the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark is everywhere Jesus goes, his reputation precedes him. Even just based on the accounts that we have recorded in the Gospel of Mark up until this point in time, which probably isn't a comprehensive, just a glimpse of some of the things that Jesus did, it's not hard to see why crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. But when you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 10, he says that this location of Bethsaida was actually the the location where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. So you can imagine why his reputation has been well known in that area. But on this occasion, as Jesus arrives, there's a man who is blind, who is brought to Jesus by helpers, because he's blind, for healing. And specifically, they are begging him, they are asking him to touch touch this blind man. Now, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen many healings that take place as a result of Jesus' touch. Both those that are initiated by Jesus, Jesus initiates, touches the leper and heals him. We see him take Jairus' daughter by the hand. We see even in Nazareth, the place where, where nobody responded to him. He was not well received, it said, but he laid his hands and healed a few in that city in chapter 6. But there are many who are healed by the touch of Jesus without Jesus being the one who initiates it. In chapter 5, you had the woman with the the bleeding issue. In chapter 6, we talk about the many who just thought if they touched the the hem of his robe that they would be healed, and they were. And there are even occasions when there's not even any touch, and even more so, even some, one occasion at least recorded, where Jesus isn't even physically present for the servant of the centurion. He just says, no, you just say the word and I know it will be done. But for this blind man, who we're not told whether he is born blind or if he's become blind as a result of something, either way, life is not easy when you're blind. Even for him to get to Jesus, he had helpers to guide him there. Now, I've never been blind, but I can tell you now, just in darkness, the amount of times that I've walked into the coffee table in our media room, it's a lot of times. It's just inside the door because we moved a little bit for the dog to play at, at night time and 
done it many times. Miller's even done it a couple of times this week. But without sight, you can't see where you're going. You're totally unaware of any dangers. But you're also missing out on seeing goodness and beauty. Now, this man had been led by other people to Jesus, but now it's Jesus who's doing the leading and he takes the man outside of the village. No reasons stated as to why that was the case. Maybe it was because he's not interested in putting on a show, doesn't want to attract the crowds, as people flocking around him just for the sole purpose of miracles. He's said it a number of times, I came here, my priority is to preach, to proclaim a message. Maybe it was for the man to put him at ease so he's not under the stress of the crowds. Jesus did the exact same thing for the deaf mute in Luke, sorry, Mark chapter 7. And his method's similar too. For the deaf mute, he put their fingers in his ears and then he touched the man's tongue with his spit. Now for this blind man, verse 23, when he'd spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? It's an unusual method. Spits in the guy's eyes. But it's even more unusual that Jesus would ask of the guy that he's healing, do you see anything? Like since when does Jesus have to ask somebody that he's healing, has this been effective at all? Is this working? As I said previously, you can rule out any suggestion that Jesus was unaware of the extent to which he had restored this man's sight. Also, you can rule out any suggestion that Jesus was powerless to heal this man instantly and perfectly. Rather, what we should be asking is why would Jesus ask this question? Why would Jesus do something in two phases when he could simply do it in one? Both Jesus asking this man the question and the man's reply are for the benefit of the disciples. If we think about context, just look at what we saw in the verses leading up to where we are at this morning. Remember the disciples had seen the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. They're getting on the boat to go somewhere. They start stressing out, we've got no bread, even though they're in the presence of the one who's provided abundantly on a number of occasions in front of their very eyes. And Jesus, aware of this, that is, aware that they were worrying about the fact they had no bread, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you've got no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus says to them, don't you, you've got eyes, don't you see? Don't you see clearly? His own disciples had problems seeing and were totally oblivious, totally unaware of it. And before their very eyes is a man who was blind and Jesus has spit in his eyes, placed his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? Not too dissimilar to the question that he'd asked of his disciples a few verses earlier. The man who was once blind now describes what he does see. He looked up and says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. In other words, the man who once could see nothing, he can see 
something. Certainly not clear. He says, oh, I see people but they look like trees. I haven't encountered too many people that look too much like trees. But my guess is he, he's come to the conclusion that trees generally don't walk around, so if, if it looks like they're moving around, he may not be able to make out enough detail to physically see they are people, but trees don't walk around, therefore what I'm seeing must indeed be people. His sight's not particularly good, but he can see something. Likewise, the disciples have some idea about Jesus, but it's more than a little bit foggy. They haven't rightly understood his identity. They haven't rightly understood his mission. Thankfully, in the plan of God, it's not his intention to leave the blind man in this foggy state, nor was it his intention to leave his disciples or his children, including us, in a foggy state. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So he goes from blind, partial sight to complete sight, seeing everything clearly. What did the man do? What did the man offer? He had nothing to offer. He had nothing to offer except his, his blindness and he had a couple of guys who were willing to help him, to bring him to Jesus. Only Jesus Christ alone could grant sight to this man. And he alone transforms his disciples. He alone transforms us from a state of blindness, even from a state of misunderstanding or a foggy view of who he is, to being able to see him clearly. Within minutes, this man had the full spectrum. Blind, better, best. Now, for the poor-sighted disciples, this visual lesson would show them that Jesus can transform them too. A people who he's just said to them, have you eyes and you do not see, that he too can open their eyes to see clearly. So look at the disciples, blind, better to best in 27 to 30. Verses 22 to 26 are not just another example of Jesus' pit power to heal in its context immediately after Jesus rebuking his disciples for not rightly understanding, for having eyes but not rightly seeing his identity and his mission it's no coincidence this event takes place after that they didn't understand fully who Jesus was they didn't understand fully the nature of his mission. After they'd seen the feeding of the 5,000, see the feeding of the 4,000, when they were lacking bread, the only thing they could see was the problem. The only thing they could see was the fact they had no bread, they couldn't see who they had with them and what he had done for them in the past. Now on the way to Caesarea Philippi, again heading north from where they, they were previously, Jesus asked his disciples a question. Now at this point in time we're not sure how long Jesus had been with his disciples but it had been a while. 
whether it's months or maybe even up to one year, Jesus had spent some time with them. And now it's probably a fair time to ask a pretty honest question. But he kind of eases up into it. He starts with a general question of, who do people say that I am? What's, what's the general consensus around here about what are people saying about me? And they answer that question and we'll look at that in more detail next week. Then it comes to the more pointed question. What about you? What do you say? Who do you say that I am? That you is in plural, so he's addressing the entirety of the disciples, not just one particular one. But no surprise, there's one who has a, a, a tendency to speak up pretty quickly. It's Peter, pops his head up. And he answers the question. And he says, You are the Christ. Or in Matthew's Gospel, we have an extended version of Peter's answer saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is consistent between all those three accounts is Peter says, you are the Christ. That is, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, you are the king. Now the term just means anointed. That's its general meaning. And throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the people who were the anointed would be priests, prophets and kings. Become the first century in Judaism... All of their focus was on this kingly element, this expectation of a Messiah who would be a political leader, one who would banish the Romans and the, and the foreign nations and defeat them in war. So while Peter seems to see Jesus clearly, he's got the right terminology, you soon see that he doesn't actually understand everything that he says. Because when Jesus explains in plain language the nature of his mission, that the Son of Man must suffer, be handed over and die and be raised on the third day, the same Peter who just proclaimed him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, rebukes Jesus and says, no way, you can't do that, you're not going to die. That's not what a Messiah is supposed to do. So Peter's got the right terminology, he can, he can speak all the right lingo, but he does not understand. He, like all of the other Jews around him, didn't have a clear understanding of what the Messiah would be like. None of them expected a Messiah who would suffer, let alone die and die underneath the Romans that, he, that they expect that Jesus is going to come and defeat, or the Messiah would come and defeat. This encounter between Jesus and the disciples and Peter, we see some progress into them understanding and seeing Jesus for who he is. But it's far from final. Peter and the disciples, they've come to see something more of who he is, but still, if we're being honest, probably still have the clarity something of walking trees going around. What we learn, and the disciples will learn, is that they, like the blind man, will see and will see him clearly. 
Jesus has given them some degree of understanding and insight, but they will see him for who he truly is and what he truly came for. That clarity comes particularly with the arrival of two events. They are the resurrection and at Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We see it recorded in the scriptures a number of times where it says, and then they remembered after he was raised that Jesus said these things or, or then they remembered or understood. And Jesus even said in the giving of the Spirit, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And probably one of the best expressions of the disciples coming to see Jesus clearly was expressed at Pentecost. In Peter's, as he's preaching there in Acts chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So the same guy who rebuked Jesus for saying he's going to do, now says this was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And just going down a little bit later in verse 36, says, Let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. The disciples went from a near blindness to clearer to clear. And every single step of them being increased in their understanding of who Jesus was wasn't because they were working stuff out. It was because he was working in them to open their eyes to see these things. Which reaches a finality and a totality of understanding when all of us one day will see Jesus face to face. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he says, For we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's, wouldn't you like to get to that stage? When you know of Christ, of everything, to the extent to which he knows you now. Should have gone to Jesus. You know you've got a good advertising campaign when everyday people just use it all over the place. Wasn't that too many years back when everyone was doing the, I bought a Jeep! Carl and Karen probably loved that until they got one. For the older generation, remember the not happy Jan. The good old yellow pages, they forgot to put their ad in. Yellow pages, young people, was like a book that had, had phone numbers and addresses for businesses. And more recently, the good old should have gone to Specsavers. Which basically, any setting where you think somebody would have avoided a difficult situation by having better sight, you say, should have gone to Specsavers. Not because they're the only people who can fix your eyesight, but because they had a very good slogan that people remembered. And there's some quality examples right there. I avoided the temptation for some politically incorrect ones that came up when I searched. The whole suggestion is, if you've got problems seen clearly, if you go to Specsavers, you wouldn't have been in that scenario or would have been fixed. 
In our passage, we've seen a man who started with no sight at all and disciples who started with some. And I think it is a helpful reminder that what Jesus is communicating here applies to both those who have got no understanding of Jesus yet as well as those who might have an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. Because it deals with both with sight for the blind and also a clearer vision for those who are impaired, which all of us, according to 1 Corinthians 13:12, are still vision impaired. When we see him face to face, then we will know him as we have been known. So firstly, for those who haven't yet placed their trust in Jesus, sight for the blind. The Bible commonly uses this term blind for those who haven't yet placed their trust in Jesus. Now I should say that that does not mean that the Bible is saying if you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus that you are dumb or that you are ignorant or stupid. A person's inability to see Jesus rightly for who he is and the goodness of the gospel is no more a person's fault than it is a blind man's fault that they are blind. It's the way in which we are born. We need to be born again, made new, in order to see these things. That's the language Jesus gave to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It simply means that the person is unable to see, they will remain unable to see, unless somebody outside of them opens up their eyes, if God opens their eyes. One of the ways Jesus described his mission in Luke chapter 4, when he was given the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Sure, that included his physical giving people sight to the blind, but more than anything, giving people, opening their eyes to the blindness towards him and the wonderful salvation that is offered in Christ. So if you're not sure about all this Jesus stuff, then you have good reason to pray, God, open my eyes, help me to see. Because it's what he's in the business of doing. He's the one who does it. Don't just try harder, ask him. Open my eyes, help me see. And then read through one of the Gospels, one of the biographies of Jesus' life. Doesn't matter which one, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, take a pick. See who he is. Let him open your eyes. Let him expose himself that you might see him for who he is. Now for those of you who have trusted Jesus but have a concern for a friend who hasn't yet placed their trust in Jesus, pray for them daily that God would open their eyes. It doesn't come down to you having the best convincing arguments. You need God to open their eyes and you need to have their eyes focus upon the truth that God has already made known. God will do the hard work. We just need to pray that God would do his work, that he would open their eyes and show them what, what Christ has done for us to deal with our sin. Because the truth is we're not right before God. None of us, how, no matter how good we've lived, have not lived good enough that we should be accepted to God. I haven't, you haven't. We never will be good enough. 
But God is good. And because he's good, he must punish rebellion. He must punish sin. But he's also gracious and merciful. That it's not his desire to punish, it's his desire to save. He is by nature a saviour. And so Jesus came into the world intentionally to bear the full punishment, a death sentence for the people who have rebelled against God. That they might turn from their sin, place their trust in Jesus, saying, his death was my death. He's paid it in full. He is my king. I will live for him. He is my only hope. He's my rock, my refuge. And for all who reach that time, will be given eternal life, enter into his family and join with him in his mission. And if that even sounds at all appealing, maybe God's already begun opening your eyes. And secondly, for those of us who have already placed our trust in Jesus, clearer vision for the impaired. We see in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we will see perfectly when we see him face to face, which means that at this point in time, regardless of where we are at with our walk with Jesus, there will be some areas in which we don't see as clearly as we'd like to think we do. Until then, until we see him face to face, our perception of God, of ourself, of the world we live in, is not perfect. He's still sharpening our sight. He's still sharpening our understanding. And as we spend time with him in his word, at times it will shine a bright, glaring light on areas in which we are either blind or in which we do not see clearly. Either unintentional things that we don't see clearly Just things that we hadn't noticed before and all of a sudden there's a light on. It's like, I've never seen that before. Or maybe things that we've intentionally been blind to. Things that we know there are in the scriptures, but we don't like them. Or they they kind of go against the grain of my own personal desires and so we pretend they don't exist. And that light gets shone on them. It says, open your eyes, behold and see the good things I have given to you in my word. What we give our attention to, like a camera, what you give your attention to, that's where the focus is. Everything else is kind of blurry in, fits around that. What is the thing that you have most central focus on in your life? What is it that is clearest, that defines everything else around? It should be Christ. Nothing else. There's lots of good things and there's nothing wrong with having lots of other good things. Nothing wrong with loving your kids, loving your job, loving your hobbies. But in terms of central focus, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who has bought you at a price. So my prayer for myself, for all of us, is just what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all of the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. May God open our eyes, regardless of where we are, that we might see and behold him more clearly and respond to him in faithfulness and obedience. It's closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you as a people who recognise that we don't see perfectly. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, if we are already trusting in you, that you've opened our eyes so that we can recognise and see the problem of our sin and to see what you have done to provide for our salvation in Jesus Christ. But Lord, we pray you would continue to refine our sight, that we might see you clearly, that our our vision of you might not be hindered by our personal opinions, our personal preferences, but, but our clear understanding of who you are as you reveal it to us might redefine all those other peripheral things. Lord, we look forward to for that day when we will see you face to face, when we will see you and we will know just as we have been known. Lord, we long for that day, but we also long to see you and know you more each day in this life before that moment we see you face to face. Grant us humility when your word shines a light on things that we were blind out of ignorance to or things that we have intentionally blinded ourselves to because we didn't like them. Lord, all that you have revealed is an expression of your character and all of your character is perfect and good in all that it is. Lord, it is a joy for you to shine a light on things even if at times it is uncomfortable because all you have given is for our good and for your glory. And we give you thanks for the one who has opened our eyes. In his name we pray. Amen. And in a slight change to our reading plan, that will be the reading that we look at next week.